At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 477th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who helps convey observations from the kitchen, the dining room, and the garden. We're talking with Joe Yonan about documenting the culinary experience. Joe is the food and dining editor of the Washington Post, supervising all food coverage in the features department. He is also the editor of America the Great Cookbook and has written two cookbooks, Eat Your Vegetables and Serve Yourself. Joe was a food writer and travel editor at the Boston Globe before moving to Washington in 2006 to edit the Post's food section. He writes the Post's weeknight vegetarian column and for five years wrote the Cooking for One column, both of which have won honors from the Association of Food Journalists. Congratulations, by the way. In addition to writing about food and dining, Joe has written about his efforts to grow food on his 150-square-foot urban front yard. Welcome to the show today, Joe. Are you ready to rock? Let's do it. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. Well, I've worked in journalism my entire career, ever since I was 15-year-old high school student. Wow. Editing my, yeah, editing my high school newspaper. And then I went to work for my city daily newspaper while I was in high school. And I turned toward food, turned my journalism career toward food in starting in 1999. I decided to go to culinary school while I was working at the Boston Globe and just wanted to turn my journalism career toward my passion, which has really always been food. Eating. Yeah. Love yeah, that. Eating, eating, talking to chefs, talking to other people about what they eat, conversations over meals, all of it was my favorite. Wow. And so decades maybe? Definitely decades. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I really started getting into food when I was a kid. I threw a kind of a funny uh, loophole that my mother discovered after she divorced my father. I did all the grocery shopping for the family for many years. I was um, eight years old and my parents were divorced and my father was in the Air Force and my mother was really used to buying food at the discount Air Force Base commissary. You know, she was certainly watching her money. And when they got divorced, she realized that she lost privileges to shop there and she was devastated. And then she very quickly discovered that there was a loophole, which is that his children did not lose privileges. Oh, nice. <laughs> so that's how we ended up with her driving me to the store. She could go on, she could get on base. She just couldn't go in the store. So she drove me to the store. She waited in the parking lot. She gave me a list with all the items on it that we needed for the week and cash. And I even had this little 
hand clicker counter thing that I used to keep track. And our deal was that if I got everything on the list and came in under budget, I could buy something for myself. So I learned to comparison shop and kind of understand brands. And pretty soon I was interested in what was happening to the food when we got home. Um, wow. You know, how she was cooking it and I wanted to help. And Hold on, hold on. I, I don't want to pass this up. That was pretty dang epic, actually. And as, as an eight-year-old, <laughs> you're, on, you're basically yeah. in charge of shopping. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, the first time we went, I remember coming out with the, you know, the bagger. They, of course, had baggers who helped you out to your car from the store back then. Yep. And I, I remember he was following me and kind of laughing. And we got to the car and he didn't see my mother there. And he said, don't tell me that you can drive. <laughs> but it was great. It was really great. I just, I, I pretty immediately... You you know, started having opinions about food too, you know, which things were better. There was a whole butter versus margarine thing between me and my mother. There were lots of, lots of little things and it just, it just grew from there. Wow. So fast forward a few years, what happens next? Well, I, once I was um, at the Boston Globe working on the copy desk and I made this transition to food journalism, it basically was a year of culinary school. And while I was working on the night copy desk at the Globe, and I did that for about a year, and it was intense and wonderful, but very busy. I went to culinary school during the day and edited stories and wrote headlines at night. And they were very long days, but completely worth it. And I, I loved it. And then I started just trying to write about food in my spare time for the Globe while I was working on the night desk. And then I finally got off the desk and was made travel editor, which was amazing and wonderful. And I brought a lot of food coverage into travel. But the whole time I still was really eyeing, you know, being um, full-time in food journalism. So I finally convinced them to put me over in the food department. And, you know, part of it was making myself indispensable in other ways. threatening to leave and then asking for what I wanted. And that happened. I needed to do that a couple of times before I finally got a food writer gig at the Globe and did that for a couple of really great years and then came to the Post in 2006 um, when there was an opening for, for the food editor. I still really wanted to, you know, really shape my own food section. And the you know, the Post was just such an attractive place to come. So So that's what I've been doing since 2006. Wow. 13 years. Is that a dream job? Absolutely. Yeah, it's the longest I've ever worked anywhere. It's just, yeah, it's fantastic. The great thing about journalism, you know, is that you can, you get to do different things all the time. Right. You get to ask people that you never thought you would get to talk to. You get to ask them questions. I mean, you get to do that um, on the podcast too, correct? Yeah. Um, so you know that feeling. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, and as, a, as a, an editor, you know, I do some writing, and then I also just really get to work with other writers about their, you know, making their work better and, you know, deciding what's important for us to cover, what direction we want to go in, any particular new columns or series are fun to work on. And then really, you know, most recently, what's been super 
fun for me has been that we started up this new destination at the Post for younger cooks and cooks who are maybe a little more intimidated and less experienced in the kitchen called Voraciously. And it's been the first time that I've actually gotten to really take a hard look at my own work and reinvent my own work. I had kind of done that previously with other people's work. You know, I came into situations where I was taking over something that someone else had done. And this was a time that I got to, you know, sort of bring that same sense of reinvention to my own work. And it just really reinvigorated me. Wow voraciously.com is that website. So I just jumped on it and the recipe on the front cover looks delicious. Oh, thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We, we're having a lot of fun. You know, we have really decided that what we want to make sure we do is bring people into the kitchen and help people who might not be comfortable in the kitchen, get comfortable in the kitchen. So it's just been, it's, it's been incredible. And the response from readers has been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. The engagement is, with readers is really high as well. There's a people really want to talk to us about the stories and con- the comments are, you know, way way more than we got before we did voraciously, and it's just been it's been incredibly invigorating. Awesome! Congratulations. Thank you. One of the questions that you tossed me got my curiosity up, and it says here, "What is a food writer versus a food editor?" Tell me about that. Yeah. So. I think it's funny that a lot of people have a hard time imagining what a food editor does when I am at a dinner party and people, you know, if if it's obviously not people that I know and they ask me what I do and I say I'm the food editor at the Post and they they always say, oh, what's it like going in disguise to all those restaurants? (laughs) And I say, I'm not the critic. You know, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not the critic. I am the food editor. And they say, well, what does, what does that mean? And finally I started saying, well, in regards to the critic, it basically means that I'm the, I'm the food critic's boss. (laughs) And they they, they get that a little bit more. But it's really the difference between editing and writing, right? So a food editor or any kind of editor is someone who is editing other people's work, making it better, hopefully, writing headlines, directing coverage. You know, I, I I manage the food team. So I am hiring people. I'm giving feedback to people. I'm leading the meetings in which we're talking about what we're going to do, what upcoming stories we're going to work on, and I'm trying to make it all fit together into a package, a print package every week, and then a, a digital package every day hey, Right. that I think is, you know, what readers want. Wow, what a cool job. Thanks. I love it. You can't have it, Greg. <laughs> no, I live in Phoenix, although <laughs> the, it went through my brain. It's like, uh, you need a West Coast food writer? <laughs> so what makes a good food writer? Well, you know, we're all journalists here at the Post, so we certainly, I certainly think that journalism, you know, and reporting is a big component of successful food writing. So that means, you know, knowing how to research, knowing how to interview, having a good sense of what makes something newsworthy and interesting. And then, of course, you know, being open to lots of different kinds of foods. Certainly, there's people who focus on, that focus their writing on restaurants, 
rather than home cooking and vice versa. And I think both of those are really important. Most of our staff is pretty well versed in both. You know, they can they can write about restaurants and packaged foods and snacks and fast food and they can also write about cooking, which is which is fantastic. But you know, at a place like the Post, we all are journalists also. So, you know, I think in this day and age there are people writing about food in all sorts of formats, you know, from Yelp and TripAdvisor type reviews to to the types of things that we do. And I certainly, you know, have a bias toward food writing that's grounded in in journalism. And good food, maybe? All good food writing isn't about good food. And what I mean by that is there can be very interesting writing and takes on food that the writer doesn't necessarily think is great, but is trying to understand. One of our most popular recurring occasional features that we do is Tim Carmen and Maura Judkis, two people on my staff, write a lot about fast food offerings. Maura writes about pretty much every Starbucks drink that comes out, and she's hilarious, and she she captures them in a really readable way. And Tim writes a lot about what McDonald's does and Burger King and the burger places. And and we're trying to make sure that we are weighing in on the kinds of foods that everyone is eating or a lot of people are eating. At the same time, we also have really great commentary by the likes of a writer I have, Tamar Haspel, who's a columnist who writes about food policy issues mm. every month. Mm-hmm. And she tries kind of tries to get beyond the divisive debates that you see in this area and tries to, you know, really look at research and get at why certain things are happening the way they are and how people might think about them. Wow. So that's some, maybe some investigative journalism going on there? Sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we've done, Maura has done uh, some pretty powerful work on sexual harassment in restaurants, which has required a lot of investigative work. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty varied landscape. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Well, and then there's all of the stuff around the people that grow food that has to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really, I really think that labor is going to continue to be a big issue in the food industry, um, whether it's from the immigrants who work in restaurants and on farms or people who are just trying to make a living waiting tables and the benefits that they get or don't get. I think that's going to continue to be a big issue in, in food writing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're tackling that. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's, I mentioned it earlier, voraciously.com. Let, let's talk a bit about what your web, that website is. Why is it there? You know, what, yeah. what are you doing with it? Tell me about it. Yeah, so we started it a little more than a, it'll be almost a year and a half soon, to really try to get away from writing only for knowledgeable, sophisticated cooks. We we were looking for ways to distinguish ourselves from a lot of other food media out there. And one of the things that we just thought that we could do that nobody was really doing in the way that we thought we could was speak to people who 
you know, the the target, we've often said that the target is millennials, but what's been interesting is has been how popular it's been with all of our subscribers, mm-hmm. um, who, who certainly, are, many of them are certainly older than millennials. But the mission is to inspire people to want to get into the kitchen and to hold their hands once they're there enough that they can have success and build their confidence. So, you know, I really feel like so many younger people have experienced food from around the world. They've traveled, they've eaten at all sorts of restaurants, but when it comes to putting together dinner in their own kitchen, a lot of times they're just at a loss. They're curious, they're very interested. Food is a huge priority for them, but they sometimes just don't even know where to start. So that's why we started Voraciously, and that's that's the mission. Nice. To really bring them into the kitchen and help them gain confidence once they're there. And you'll see that we also do, on Voraciously, we do pieces about trending ideas that we think will be of interest, and we do a lot of how-to pieces you know, how to make preserved lemons, the best way to choose a blender and the things you can do with it, you know, how to take, particularly in this season, summer, when there's, you know, herbs just overflowing out of the farmer's market and maybe people have some pots on their patio or maybe if they're lucky like me, they've got a little space to put some things in the ground. There's just herbs, herbs, herbs coming. So we wanted to help them think about how to use a lot of their herbs rather than just a tablespoon here, a tablespoon there <laughs> right. as garnish, like how to use them by the fistful rather than the thimbleful, right? So we have pieces like that. Herbs are so incredibly prolific once they get established. I I have a, an oregano bush in my front yard that I could probably pull yeah. 15 pounds of oregano off, and oregano is light. So yeah. That's a absolutely. lot. Of, yeah. Yeah, I have the same in my backyard. Yeah, it's fabulous, and it's just flowered, and I love using the flowers, you know, in soups and on salads, and yeah, it's fantastic. Nice. When I, so I'm scrolling down on voraciously.com and I'm on vacation next week. And there's this article by Becky Crystal, a week's worth of dishes to make in your vacation rental this summer. It's like, right. oh, that got my attention. <laughs> right, right. Good, good. Yeah, one of the things that we're really trying to do is, you know, we have thousands and thousands of recipes in our archives, uh-huh. but it's really hard to regularly get them in front of people. And, you know, when you first publish them, you know, you can you can say, oh, here's this great, right. you know, here's this great soup I just came up with, and it'll get some attention, which is, which is awesome. But what we've really been trying to do, too, is to look back at our archives and sort of regroup things for people in ways that we think they'll be interested in, like, in the moment. So yeah. it's very, very seasonal. It's very kind of weather dependent, you know, it's hot, here's things that won't heat up your kitchen. You know, you've got leftover yogurt, here's recipes you can make with it. You know, here's here's like melon recipes that we've put together over the years that, that are much better than like a boring old f- fruit cup, you mm-hmm. know, right? things like that. In permaculture, permaculture I like to call the art and science of working with nature, and I study permaculture out in my yard, but this is, you know, this is reusing an asset or stacking functions. These are concepts from the permaculture movement that you're doing right inside of your recipe projects, which is cool. Oh, I hadn't ever thought of it that way. I love that. Wow. So you've edited a book, put together a recipe book for us called America, the Great Cookbook. Tell me about it. 
It's an incredible project, if I do say so myself. I really loved working on it. It is a benefit for the charity No Kid Hungry. And what we decided to do was ask 100 chefs, producers, growers, food figures around the country to sit for a portrait and to sit for an interview and to give us a recipe for something that they make for the people that they love. And we spent, it was a very quick, incredibly tight schedule. We spent a few months sending a team around the country to photograph and interview all these people. And they came back with gorgeous photos and incredible recipes. And when you now look at the book, it's this really rich, vibrant tapestry of the American food scene. There's wow, a huge, yeah, it's, it's really, I'm really proud of it. There's a, just a ton of immigrants in the cookbook, which is, I think, incredibly appropriate because Absolutely. I think that that's what, yep, I think that's what makes America great. And there's a little play on that on the title of the Great American Cookbook. Uh-huh. And we just really wanted to show the incredible diversity of the American food scene. Oh, well, and it's the melting pot of the world for the past, what, 300 years? So one would think... That's that, right. One would think that there's an incredible food diversity here. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you brought up the melting pot analogy because I talk about that in my in my intro, you know, the only thing that always used to bother me about that analogy when I was a kid, when I first heard it, was I always wondered, you know, what happens when someone melts in, you know, do they disappear? Mm. Um, does everything about them disappear? And I've come to sort of think that the melting pot analogy isn't, doesn't quite do it for America because it, it sounds like we become homogenous, where really it's it's probably what is it? Is it a gumbo, you know, or a, oh, right. a, a, a bouillabaisse, you know, where every element is still distinct, but it adds up to this incredible whole. Spelled W H O L E. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. So the book's been out for a little while. Yeah. And you've been, you know, you've been speaking about it publicly and. What I'm sure along the way there's been something that happened for you with somebody, some some incident, something happened where it was like, wow, this is the reason we did this book. Have you got one of those for me? People have been really surprised to look at it and not think of it as a region by region book. So I, I've had people at events say to me, you know, when they weren't familiar with the book or hadn't quite looked at it yet, they would say, oh, so it's, so it's arranged by, it's arranged by state. And I say, no. (laughs) And they're like, oh, is it arranged by region? I'm like, no, no, not really. And they're like, well, how is it arranged? And I said, you know, what we want with this book is for you to page through it and to stop at the stories and pictures that matter to you and that draw you draw you in and the things that you want to make and the people that you want to read about and we're telling you where everybody's from and where the where the um, geography is but we basically want you to sort of be immersed in this idea of America as sort of a rambling gorgeous jumble of people and food 
And that, that, that has happened to me several times. And then when people look at it and they just start paging through, they're like, oh, I see what you mean. There's a real rhythm to it. Uh-huh. But there's not a, it's not, it's not meant to be a reference book about the types of food that are from different parts of the country. It's meant to be a celebration of all the kinds of diversity that you'll find all over the country. So there's some classic dishes in there that represent parts of the country, but, but there's, but they're somewhat of a minority. Mostly it's really interesting and diverse things that you wouldn't always think of. Wow. So a hundred different chefs and you tell their story, get a picture of them and then they share their recipe. Yep. Gorgeous photos of recipes. You know, it's everything from, we have a spotlight on Sean Sherman, who's an amazing Native American chef in the Midwest who goes by the name The Sioux Chef, S-I-O-U-X, Chef, (laughs) which is great. And we have his, you know, maple glazed acorn squash, which is beautiful. We have, you know, a Puerto Rican food writer in New York and her fantastic recipe for Puerto Rican classic mofongo. And we have some big names in here like Michael Salamana from Zahav. And we have some lesser known people like a berry farm in California and and a old classic drive-in in uh, Montana. We have people in their garden. We have a lot of people in their gardens, which, which you would really appreciate. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And talking about gardens, you have one. Tell me about it. I do. Yeah, I do. So for the longest time, or I should say for several years, I grew food on my 150 square foot front yard in a townhouse in the northeast neighborhood of D.C. I packed six four by four raised beds onto that front yard, and it was pretty amazing. I mean, I learned a ton. I had spent a year in 2012 living with my sister and brother-in-law on their homestead in southern Maine. They grow all, uh, as much of their food as they can. They grow almost all of their own food. Wow. And that year was incredibly influential and impactful for me. And when I came back, I was coming back to an apartment that didn't have much outdoor space. I was a member of a community garden at the time, but it was getting the garden was getting paved over by the owners, which was devastating to everyone. And I really wanted to have a gardening space, so I moved to a townhouse that had this little front yard. I just did what I could, and it ended up, you know, I think the first year I got 30 pounds of tomatoes and. 25 pounds of cucumbers out of that little garden. So it was it was really great. And then about a year and a half ago, I moved to a my husband and I moved to a different neighborhood in Northeast DC, bought a big house with a really sizable yard and and put in two 4 by 20 beds. Uh-huh. And they're they're wonderful because they're 3 feet or 2 and a half feet tall slash deep yeah. with a with about a 10-inch ledge built around them. So that means that I can sit when I weed, which is really nice. It actually (laughs) is, yes, especially as we age. Yep, exactly. Yep. So I've been I've, I've been growing a ton of stuff there too. I'm a huge fan of growing garlic, and I just pulled my garlic a few weeks ago, and uh, I grew sixty heads of garlic and wow. cured it all. Yep, yep. I have this fantasy of having enough garlic to get me through the year if I can store it right. So I cured it and braided it, and now it's hanging in in my basement in a room that I can that has a door so I can keep it away from the cat. Oh, yes. He really liked 
last year when I when I had garlic, he really liked you know jumping up there and clawing at it, which was not helpful. But I'm growing tons of stuff. I just I just got six huge heads of cauliflower out. I'm not really as good at succession gardening as yep. I would like to be. So I plant everything at once, and then I have six huge heads of cauliflower all at once. But it's fun. I pickled it all, and that was great. And now I've got a ton of collard greens and tomatoes and peppers and herbs. And I've got a little space where the garlic came out that I'm thinking about what to put in there now. Right. Probably skip over to some fall stuff. It's super hot in DC. So, you know, I have to be careful about what I'm putting in right now. Yes. So you use the word succession planting. Can you give us like one minute's worth on what exactly that means? Yeah. The idea with succession planting is that you plant something and then a week or two later, you plant a little bit again, et cetera. And it helps things come in in waves. So that way you don't end up with all of your stuff at once. Yeah. I've never, never been very good at it. Um, <laughs> it's particularly good with like, with lettuces or mm-hmm. greens or quick, quick growing things so that you, you know, you keep yourself in harvest, but the things are coming in gradually. So yeah. you're not overwhelmed with any, any one item at, at once. Yeah. I love how you said it. It comes in in waves. That's really important. And it's a talent to get that done. Yes, it is. It requires patience and planning, two things that I do not always have in as high of a supply as I would like. (laughs) You and me too. (laughs) So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. One time that I failed was I was in Boston working at the Boston Globe. I was trying to get off of the nighttime copy desk, and there was a job that came up for a New England editor, and I would have gotten off of the copy desk. And I went for the job, and I think I just wasn't that enthusiastic about it, so I didn't get the job. And honestly, it was the first time in my life that I hadn't gotten a job that I wanted. So rather than being disappointed about it, I actually was relieved because, well, I wasn't sure why I was relieved. Mm-hmm. And it ended, up, it, it ended up really causing me to take stock of what I wanted and what my priorities were. And I realized that I actually was getting a little bit tired of news and was really wanting a career change. And that's what led me into thinking about food. So I turned that failure into a reevaluation of my priorities and it changed everything. And this is exactly why I asked this question, because it's it's when we reflect on those things that didn't quite go the way we wanted them to go that I believe has us magically create what we really want. Right. Right. There was a reason, I think, that I'm not saying that I should get anything that I want or that I should have gotten something just because I wanted it. But the fact that I didn't get it when I reflected back on why that was, it was pretty clear to me fairly quickly that I didn't really want it. And they were picking up on that. And then that led me to be thinking like, well, why didn't I want that? And what is it that I really... It was the difference between doing something that you think you're supposed to do and going on a path that you think you're supposed to be on yep. and and going down the path that really calls to you and being aware of what's calling to you. What lights you up. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And what do you consider your biggest success? There's so, so many 
possibilities. I mean, I have had certainly lots of, of career ups and downs, but mostly I feel good about, you know, where I am. But I would have to say my I consider my biggest biggest success to be my marriage. Nice. Say more about that. Well, I have a great husband, and I, I was single for a really long time. You know, I wrote books about cooking for one, even. Um, All right. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I didn't get married until I until actually about a year ago. <laughs> and I'm 53, so and it's my, it's my first marriage. So I wow. think that I finally figured out how to how to have a successful relationship. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Heidi and I have been together for six years, and I'm 58, and she's the my third wife, and it's mad when it's good, it's magical, and so I hear yeah. that. Congratulations, yeah, yeah. man! Thank you, thank you, ditto. And what drives you? Hunger. <laughs> All right, so hunger in your stomach <laughs> or hunger to hunger to see what possibilities are, curiosity, you know, a sense that there's always another story to be told and. There's always a new dish to explore. There's always something that someone may need help learning. There's a writer that, you know, might need help expressing something more clearly. Mm-hmm. There's stories that I feel like we can tell better than anyone else that I want to tell. And that all feels like hunger to me. Yeah. Nice. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? The Fate of Food by Amanda Little. The subtitle is What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. Mm. And it it's such a good read. She's an incredible journalist. And she basically is looking at the effects of climate change on our global food supply and on our and on the challenge that we have to feed, you know, a growing planet. And she looks at a lot of really what people would consider to be high-tech solutions, but she's looking for ones and spotlighting ones where the technology is advanced and the ideas are incredibly forward-thinking, but they but there are still ways in which they're holding to issues of sustainability and and really valuing the culture around food. And it's and it's an incredibly interesting read. It looks like it. I actually pulled it up on on the internet. The fate of food, what we'll eat in yep. a bigger, hotter, smarter world. I love it that you yep. put smarter in there. So, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Think big and follow your bliss. You know, think about what you really want to do and what makes you happy and and go for it. Nice. That is the whole point of me doing this podcast is to showcase people who are going big and doing what they love. Cool. Yeah. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us on the show today, Joe. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. And how can our listeners find you? Social media is really easy. I'm... I'm Joe Yonan on Twitter. I'm Joe Yonan on Instagram. You can also find me at the Washington Post very easily. We have we all have author pages. So if you if you Google Washington Post Joe Yonan, you should come to my author page at the Washington Post. And it's very easy to read everything I've written there and also to with a just a touch of a button you can email me from there. Excellent. And it comes right to my post email. 
Excellent, excellent. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Joe Yonan. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.